right, well, once again, would you join us in a word of prayer? Join me. Father, I thank you so much that we can come together in a group and pray to you right now, and that you hear our prayers. Thank you that you are a good Father, that you meet our needs. Thank you that you've met our greatest needs of forgiveness and of eternal life beyond the grave. And I pray right now that you would stir up our hearts with hope in the risen Christ as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, this morning, you can turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, the letter of 1 Corinthians, and we are going to be at the tail end of chapter 1. The letter of 1 Corinthians was a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote almost 2,000 years ago. And he wrote it to a church that was wrestling with many of the same things that we wrestle with even today. <coughs> now, if you remember, this letter is a letter that addresses 10 topics. 10 topics. Some of them are things Paul has heard that the Corinthians are struggling with or having trouble with. And so he's writing to address things he's heard. And some of those topics are topics that they asked him questions about. And we read about that in chapter 7 up through chapter 15. Now concerning the matters that you wrote about. So they wrote him a letter, and Paul is responding to these 10 different issues in his letter. In chapters 1 to 4, which is where we're at right now, Paul is addressing a topic that he's heard about. He's caught wind <coughs> of some reports from a house of a lady named Chloe. Some, some people in her house told him, hey Paul, the Corinthians are fighting over church leaders. They're dividing over who follows who. And so Paul is addressing this. A few weeks ago, I explained to you all the details about the city of Corinth and how they and other cities in the ancient world were just obsessed with celebrity speakers who would roll into town with their big entourage of disciples and they would talk with wisdom and charismatic flair in the public places of the different towns and of Corinth, they would talk, not, not usually a canned speech that they brought with them to every town, although some of them did that, but the best ones, they would preach or teach about whatever you wanted them to talk about. So, talk to us about politics. There they go. Talk to us about religion. There they go. And they'll say, usually they would test the winds, and they'd see what would people like. They're not going to preach something un or teach something unpopular, because they want brownie points. They want money. They want fame. They want notoriety. They want to be this, the next greatest thing. And so they're going to um, preach and teach things that the people really like. I think, can you imagine if these guys had the internet, right? Or Facebook or um, Twitter. They would have been all over it. We have our own version of this today, of course. And so, in chapters 1 to 4, Paul is unpacking all these reasons that he has why you sh 
the Christian church of Jesus ought not divide up over church leaders. In chapter 1, all the way up to chapter 2, verse 16, Paul is, is really, this section, explaining why you shouldn't divide about church leaders, he's, he's really unpacking uh, for the Corinthians, he's saying the way that you guys view leadership, the way you view wisdom, the way you view power is completely different than the way that God views all these things. You've been drinking the culture's Kool-Aid in the way that you think about all these issues of wisdom and what is wisdom and power. What is power? And so when you look at the cross, you see a weak loser. But we preach Christ crucified, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So that's where we've been up to this point. And now, Paul is going to say, you know what, guys? I'll show you another area that is very different than the way you think about wisdom and power. Look at the team that Jesus picked to be his family, to be his followers. And next week, we'll look, look at the preacher that he picked. A weak preacher, not very dynamic, named Paul, and a foolish and weak and powerless group of people. So look at chapter 1, verse 26 to 31. Paul says this. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. He chose the nobodies so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now this morning we're going to look at three things. First, we're going to look at God's reversal. When God picks a team of humans to join his family and live for him, he picks the opposite group than the world would think. He reverses things. Second, we'll look at God's gift. God doesn't pick a gifted team. He gifts an ungifted team with the gift of Christ and the power of Christ's spirit. And third, and finally, we'll look at man's boast. God's gifted, God's ungifted family who's received the greatest of all gifts, the gift of Christ, they cannot help but boast about the greatness of their Lord. They boast in the Lord. So, point one from these verses, God's Reversal. As humans, I want us to just start off our time thinking about this. We are a hundred percent dependent on things outside of ourselves for existence. We are not self-sufficient creatures. We are not self-sustaining. Yes, we're responsible for the choices that we make in life. You have to feed yourself, but we are 100% dependent on things outside of us 
to give us life and to sustain our lives. I want you to pause for a minute and just reflect on how fragile we really are as human beings. Think about it. Did you decide to be born? Did you name yourself? Did you feed yourself through the beginning years of life? How about the food that you eat? Did you produce all your food? Some people are like, I'm going to be super self-sustaining. I'm going to hunt what I eat. I'm going to fish what I eat. I'm going to plant everything that I eat. Nothing that I put in my mouth is going to be the result of others' labors. Did you send the rain? Did you send the sun? How about the seeds that you plant? I mean, you could keep trying to be self-sufficient, but there is an end to it all. At the end of the day, we are dependent creatures. Think about this. Right now, you are sitting in a chair that's pretty comfortable. I, I think they're pretty comfortable chairs, right? They feel kind of solid, like they're not going to give out on you. You probably feel in control, like you're not going to just fall off, but we're not. But zoom way out, okay? Take a wide-angle view at yourself. You and I are sitting right now on a very, very, very small space rock, okay? And it's covered with dirt and mostly water. And this space rock is actually filled with boiling rock. And it's hurtling around a massive ball of burning gas, surrounded by many other space rocks and burning balls of gas. And together we're moving at 67,000 miles an hour, and at the same time we're spinning at 1,000 miles an hour. And the only thing that's keeping you in place on your chair right now is gravity and air pressure. And none of these things we invented or put there or even completely understand. We are dependent creatures. That is humbling. It ought to be humbling. We are dust. When you die, the bodies that we were once fond of feeding and taking care of turn to dirt. Literally. Our only hope of a future beyond the grave lies outside of us. Your only hope of not being dirt lies outside of you. Depends on God. Everything does. In the beginning of everything, the God of the universe, He created galaxies and universes we don't even know of yet, right? That are completely and totally dependent on Him. And in this universe that God created, the one that we're aware of, around 6,000 years ago, He created two. Adam and Eve. And he made them special because they had a very important role. They were to partner with God in taking care of this tiny little part of the universe. This is your space rock. And you take care of it. And there are so many things that make Earth unique, right? Distance from the sun, the rotation that Earth is going at. Our atmosphere, it is uniquely hospitable to life in countless ways that are only, I mean, 
most scientists now, I think, are becoming aware that there has to be something out there, some higher intelligence. They're not saying it's the God of the Bible, but, you know, like people like Elon Musk would say, well, we're in a simulated universe, or there's, there's something out there. We cannot be alone in such a marvelous universe. But we believe the Bible story that Adam and Eve were created by God to take care of this amazing place, to rule it under his authority, dependent on him. And yet, tragically, these two humans decided to listen to a lie and to rebel against the source of their life, against God himself, and to partner instead with a dark and deceitful power who deceived them. They tried to establish wisdom apart from the source of their wisdom. They sought to be strong apart from the source of their strength. They sought to be something by rebelling against the God who made everything. And this is and continues to be what's at the heart of what the Bible calls sin. Sin. Seeking to live life our way. It's saying to God, I will use my body the way I want. Thank you very much. You can burn the owner's manual for all I care. I'm going to use food and drink the way I want. I'm going to put my body wherever I want. I'm going to sleep with whoever I want. I'm going to call myself whatever I want. I'm going to use my money and my time and my strength however I want. I'll go where I want to go, how I want to go. I am the captain of my soul. That's at the heart of what sin is and what it says and what it does. It's pride, it's selfishness, it's rebellion. It doesn't mean that humans who are sinful, which is all of us, it doesn't mean that we do bad things all the time, only bad. Some people who are in rebellion against God, many do much good in the world, for which we can be very thankful. But what it does mean is that all humans related to Adam and Eve are born with the same problem. We're born into a human family that is at war with God. We need someone to come and bring us peace with God and rescue us. And in the Bible, that's the story of Jesus and all of God. Jesus, the very eternal Son of God, came to rescue humans to pay the price of our rebellion on the cross. And we talked about that last week. He rescues humans from sin, humans who are often the exact, and most often, the exact opposite of the people this world would consider worth rescuing. So, now that we've reflected on, for a bit, our absolute dependence on God. Let's look at what Paul says about who God calls to belong to Jesus. God doesn't pick the most self-sustaining, powerful, rich humans on earth and say, wow, they look like they've got a lot going for them. I'll just give them a little helping hand. And with Jesus they can do even better. No, otherwise they'd have reason to boast. Well, God picked me 
because I was something. God liked me because I was extra special. No, throughout the Bible, what we see again and again is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29. He says, brothers and sisters, I'm reading here, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Think about when I was called, I was eight. Was I wise by human No, most definitely not. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were noble from birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not. Put to nothing the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. When Paul says not many were wise and not many were influential, and not many of the Corinthians are of noble birth. He doesn't mean there's no Christians in the church that the world would consider wise. He's not advocating for anti-intellectualism here, where, see, Jesus just wants us to be dummies. That's not what Paul's saying here. He doesn't mean no Christians were more wealthy in the church. There were, and we'll see that in chapter 11, and it was actually causing problems in the church. Because the wealthy people were getting to church early and drinking all the communion and getting drunk, and the people that had to work were getting there late, and there was nothing left for them. So we'll, we'll talk about power and status in Corinth. So there were some, but not many. And Paul doesn't mean there's no Christians who aren't simply brilliant. One of them was Apollos, who they were fighting over. <laughs> there, there, there are some, and these men are gifts, and women are gifts to the church, but not many were this way. Brilliant, privileged, powerful Christians are the exception, not the norm in global Christianity. Instead, the global church, the church of Paul's day, is made up of Mostly of people that the dominant institutions of the world would look at and say, you are foolish, weak, and nothing at all in the world. I used this illustration last week. I'll say it again. Think, think of it like this. Imagine you were suddenly made the captain of a pickup tackle football team for backyard football. Okay, got a group of people standing around, different ages, different sizes, different genders, and you are made the captain, and somebody else is made the captain, and says, all right, take turns, pick your team. And if you win, right, the winner gets free ice cream, or whatever, there, there's an incentive. Well, you're going to look for the people you think are the strongest. So you're going to see a five-year-old girl, and you're probably not going to pick her. You're going to see Joel, and you're going to think, ah, he'd be good at football. <laughs> You'd be very misguided, okay? However, you might think that. You're going to try to pick based on who you think is the strongest, the best at the game. God's team is the opposite. It's like he chooses those who don't even know how to play the game, right? He chooses those who are like, what's football again? Yeah, I want you. Oh, you're in a wheelchair? I want you. 
You, you're elderly. You can't even walk. I, I want you. He chooses those who are lame and blind and short and sick. That's the people who, for the most part, Jesus chooses to build his church out of. He chooses people that the folks at Harvard or Princeton or Cambridge would look at and say, they'll never amount to anything. They might not say that out loud, but they're not, they're not going to be asking for their opinions. And yet, the Holy Spirit opens their eyes to see something beautiful and amazing that the folks in the higher institutions think is crazy. That the cross of Jesus Christ, this bloody instrument of torture, is a beautiful and powerful thing that changes lives and has for 2,000 years. God chooses to open the eyes of people who have never read a book in their life or got a hard math problem right in their life. And he shows them that Jesus is attractive. Jesus is amazing, and he's worth giving your life for. People in Jesus' family, for the most part, may not know a lot of things in this life, but they have come to know the first thing there is to know about everything. And that is, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. And he has made himself known. first thing to know about the universe is Jesus is the Lord of it. And so in some ways, the little three-year-old singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, or the Bible tells me so, puts the most brilliant, degree-holding, book-writing, white-haired, decorated scholar in the world to shame if he does not see the same thing. You don't even know who made you. You don't know the first thing there is to know. God made me and everything that in this world I see. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. In the ancient church of Corinth, he, for the most part, chose the socially weak and powerless slaves and children, women and widows, orphans and prostitutes, fishermen and thieves. Jesus forgave their sins and called them to follow him and belong to his family. God has always done this. Out of the mouth of infants and children, you have ordained praise to silence the foe. And the Avenger. Everywhere the church has exploded in the world, it constantly moves away from power and money. You just see that constantly. Where is the church exploding right now? The global south. Yeah, they have their share of problems, but so do we. And as Christianity declines in the west, it explodes in Iran and in China and in Nigeria <coughs> and in Sudan and in Brazil and on and on it goes. God has done this. The center of Christianity is always moving. 
said this earlier in our sermon discussion. Wasn't sure if I'd bring it up. Think, think about the center of Judaism. Where is it? Still. Jerusalem. The center of Islam. Where is it? Still. Mecca. The center of Christianity. It's always moving. Where the greatest hub is in Rome, and in Europe, and in America. And now most Christians in the world are in Africa, South America. May their tribe increase. They'll be sending missionaries, and they already are sending missionaries to us. Now, I know this is controversial, but many of the people that are crossing our border right now are Christians. Whether they should be or not, whatever you believe by that, I'm just saying, they are coming to our shores and they believe in Jesus. We don't. And they're refugees. Amazing. Listen, friends, in our rescue, it is in our weakness and failings and shortcomings and imperfections and powerlessness that all of us, we experience the reality we are not enough. We are not sufficient. Weakness helps you wake up to reality. You are just a tiny speck of dust on a space rock hurling through space. And yet God has chosen to have a relationship with you through Jesus. You are weak, but he is strong. God's great reversal in choosing the weak to be a part of his family is intended to put his great power and love on display in our lives for our enjoyment and for his honor. The weaker you are, the greater his power when it shows up in your life. Next thing we'll look at this morning is God's gift. If you pick a team of weak, foolish people to do anything in life, how are you ever going to succeed? How in the world is God going to accomplish the work of bringing about a new, restored creation one day with a group of powerless, group weak, broken people who eventually die? And his whose bodies turned to dirt. Last time I checked, every Christian who's ever lived has died up to this point. We don't live forever. We don't run countries. We don't have trillions of dollars. We don't have limited, limitless resources. We're outnumbered 10 to 1 in this world. In many places, following Jesus is illegal. You die. Or at least get locked up. In most places in the world, following Jesus Really following Jesus and not singing the culture's songs is actually very unpopular. And added to all this, we who have placed faith in Jesus, we're still sinners. We don't look like much of a losing team most of the time, or winning team most of the time. We still act selfish. We still say unkind things. The church hurts people and has been hurting people for 2,000 years. Yes, we help people, but we are broken. We use our bodies in ways that dishonor God and we have to ask for forgiveness. How do we, as the weak, 
foolish nothings who make up Jesus' family, how do we have any hope of accomplishing anything that's going to last beyond our own graves? It's because there's one player on our team who makes all the difference. He is the team captain. The one picking. <laughs> the team leader. The creator of the team. The Lord Jesus Christ. Who himself became weak and lost everything. He became the weakest of the weak. He was scorned as a fool. He became nothing on the cross. Butchered brutally. But he was raised to life never to die again. And the Lord Jesus, this captain, this ruler of the universe, he has all the wisdom in the universe. In him, we saw in Colossians, when we preached through that, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And he has all authority. Matthew 28, verse 19, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus has all power now. He who defeated death and hell and the very grave. There is only one grave that stands eternally open, and it is the grave of the Lord Jesus. He is the conqueror. He makes all the difference. Listen to how Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. This is, he says, it is because of him, God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. What this verse says is that if you are a Christian today, if you say, I am a Christian, I follow Jesus, it's because of God. God placed your life in a new location. You see that there in verse 30? It's because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus. Now, the idea that you are in a person can be kind of confusing. It's not something that we usually say. But it's something that the Apostle Paul and the other apostles say all over the place about Jesus. It's one of the most common phrases in the New Testament. In Christ. In the Messiah. In the anointed King. In Jesus. In Him. All over the place in the New Testament. What does the, the Apostle mean? Scholars call it the doctrine of union with Christ. We could talk a lot about it. I'll just keep it simple here. To be in Christ means your life is so closely connected to Jesus' life that he represents you before God. His wisdom becomes your wisdom by the power of his spirit in you. His righteous status before God, that means his perfect record of never sinning, that becomes your perfect record before God. Even though you and I know we are not perfectly right or good in God's sight, Jesus' righteousness counts for us. And Jesus becomes our, and he says holiness, it's, it's sanctification there. Jesus is set apart as holy in God's sight. He is the sanctified one. The one who has been called and cleansed and claimed by God. Jesus belongs to God holy. He is clean, and when you get connected to him, you too become a saint, a sanctified one. He cleans you. He claims you as his own. He calls you to belong to him. And Jesus becomes our redemption. See that there, verse 30? To be redeemed means to be set free from slavery to something. Jesus has set us free from being slaves to sin. We don't have to sin anymore. It's not our master Sin shall not be your master anymore. Jesus has given us the power to live for him instead. 
And instead of being slaves to the fear of death, one day, though we will die, we will be raised when he returns. Jesus is our redemption from sin and the grave. And so to be placed in Christ means that everything Jesus has going for him, as the, the head of the new humanity, as the last and final Adam, as the founder of humanity 2.0, Jesus, his record counts for us. And all you have to do is place your faith, your trust, your absolute allegiance in him and to him and say something like this. This is what some call the sinner's prayer. Okay? Which is basically the cry of a sinner to Jesus for forgiveness for the first time. And then if you're a true Christian, you keep praying the sinner's prayer every single day, sometimes many times a day. Lord Jesus, please forgive me. Here's what the sinner's prayer sounds like. It sounds like this. Lord Jesus, I believe I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. Please cover my sin. Please give me your perfect righteousness, your record. Please give me your holiness. Please grant me your redemption. Set me free. I want to be clean. I want to belong special to God. I want to be right in God's sight. I don't want to feel like God is always mad at me for messing up again and again. Because I know I do mess up. I want to be free from feeling bound to darkness and being stuck in the ruts I've made myself and can't get out of. I need you, Lord Jesus. I need you. And when a human gets to that point, it is a miracle from the Lord. Because nobody likes to admit that deep down we are weak and sinful and powerless and dying. Deep down, nobody likes to admit we are all fools in need of God's wisdom. We're all nobodies in the eternal scope of things. Born to die and be forgotten. We need the Lord to come and rescue us with his strength. To deliver us with his wisdom. To raise our bodies from the grave and make our lives count for eternity. So, I'm just going to challenge you. If you've never prayed that way to God, then you're not a Christian. You, you haven't trusted Jesus. So I plead with you, pray now. Turn to the Lord. And we'll pray. And you can be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and begin your lifelong journey of following him. And at the end of the day, all we are is the Lord's doing and not ours. And so if you've been saved in this radical way where you've confessed your sin to the Lord, ask for forgiveness, then your only boast is in him. And that's the final thing this morning, man's boast. Man's boast. Two of the most famous verses in the Bible are found in Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 9. Paul says a very similar thing to what he says here. He says, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone can boast. Our rescue by Jesus is 100% a gift from God. You can't take credit for it. If Holly made me an incredible meal for my birthday, and I took credit for it, what are you doing? You didn't make that. It's a gift that came from outside of you. 
You don't boast in something you had no doing with. But you would boast, I would boast in her ability. Right? Look what my wife made. This is amazing. The same goes for our rescue from sin's consequences and power. It's all of Jesus. We can't take credit for it. So we boast in him. Paul's getting this language about boasting in verse 31 from Jeremiah. During Jeremiah's ministry among the Israelites, things were an absolute mess. The people of Israel were claiming that they were wise. We are so wise. We have God's word. We have God's temple. We've got God in a box. Team God. They thought they were wise. They thought they were invincible. Their priests thought they had God's word, but they were fools because they chose to rebel against him in their lives. And Jeremiah said, death is coming for all of you. Death is the final shame of all the wise and powerful. Can you be any weaker than dead? you're dead, can you be any weaker? Can you be any more foolish than when your brain stops? But there is another way, according to Jeremiah. Jeremiah says to the people of Israel who think they're so wise and yet death is coming for them. He says, let not the wise boast in their wisdom. Jeremiah 9, 23-24. Let not the wise boast in their wisdom. Let not the strong boast in their strength. But let him who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness and justice and righteousness on earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And so Paul closes out this section of this letter with the same plea to the Corinthian church. Boast in the Lord, the righteous Lord Jesus. Even if you have all the things that you could boast about in this world. If you feel like, you know, I've got some knowledge. I'm smarter than most. I've got some money. I'm wealthier than most. I've got some power. I've got some social clout. Even if you have all those things, you hold them with open hands. If you know Jesus, you can't take it with you. You are dust. You boast in the Lord. And as we conclude, I just want to put everything we've seen in a sentence. In salvation, God brings low the proud and lifts up the humble by giving them the gift of a Lord that they can boast in. A Lord Jesus who's become for us our righteousness and our redemption. One final thought. When Paul says Jesus is our righteousness, this, I want you to know as a Christian, this, is, this can be very, very practical for you. How many of you enjoy being right? Let's, let's put it this way. How many of you like being wrong? And somebody says, points out that you're in the wrong. Do you, do you, what do you do usually? Do you defend? Do you fight back verbally? doesn't feel good to be wrong. We all want to be right. We all want to be seen as right. And when we're exposed as being in the wrong, what we usually do is defend ourselves. 
We justify. We give reasons for why we're not right. We might even attack those who point out our wrong actions or wrong decisions. We want to eliminate everything that gets in the way of our justification, our rightness in our own eyes and the eyes of others. We want to vindicate ourselves in the eyes of the world. Maybe some of you are like me, and I'm still fighting this. Your, your brain is like a factory, always working overtime to justify every decision you make, every behavior that dominates your life. Maybe you walk into a room full of people and immediately start giving reasons for your actions without even being asked. Because you don't want others to judge you as not being right. You constantly justify yourself. Do you do that? you find yourself always thinking about justification? I know I do that, but it's because of this. I know I'm like that because of that. It's their fault. It's my fault. It's his fault. It's, it's what I did. Friends, we're all wired to want to be seen as right in the eyes of whoever we think matters. Okay? If you don't think somebody matters, I don't care what people think. Yeah? Well, I bet you care what you think. And you want to be seen right in your own eyes. And you've given up pleasing everybody else. So you just please you. You justify you. You set the standard of right and wrong and the bar. And you know what? Guess what? One day you're going to fail you. And then shame's going to come in. And guilt. Because you failed you. And you can't justify you. Oh, well, I'm just going to work harder tomorrow. Well, one day you're going to be laying on your deathbed. You can't work any harder. And you're looking back over your life and you're going to say... Boy, there's some things I can't justify. I can't declare right. And I can't do any more working to make them right. I can't fix it. I can't erase it. And you know what you need? Not just on that day, but on every day. You need a righteousness that counts for you. That comes from outside you. That covers you. That represents you before God. And I believe that that is what Jesus Provide. Now, we could go into a lot of depth here. What you do does matter. Jesus doesn't say, I give you righteousness. I give you a perfect record. I count, you know, my um, justification cleanses you. Now you can live however you want. Okay? No, we are being changed and transformed. But we need justification that comes from God. And Jesus becomes our righteousness in salvation. And what this does, friends, is it frees me, and it can free you, the more you embrace it, to humbly receive criticism from other people, which is really the first step in growing as a Christian, is to humble yourself. Say, I wasn't in the right. I'm a sinner. And you can admit wrong because your righteousness doesn't depend on you being perfectly right. But it depends on Jesus. So if you lay awake at night sometimes or you walk through life consumed by thoughts about what other people think of you. What do people think of me? What do people think of me? What are they thinking? What are they saying? Are they right? Friends, Jesus can set you free from that. 
He says, you are my beloved son, Barnabas, in whom I am well pleased. Through Jesus, he can set you free. What do people think of me can be changed to this. Jesus, his blood counts for me. Jesus' life covers me. And in him, I can be free. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit's power, would help us to delight in our status before you as holy people, as righteous people, because of Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to help us to grow, to be more and more like Jesus, whose blood has covered our sins. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.